was we could all praise the Lord in such a voice like that. Um, I want to take a minute to um, introduce you to our speaker now, if I can find my notes. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> so that was Rosie Fife, and she's married to James Fife, and James is the the uh, man that's going to speak to us here. He, he and his wife, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they for several years were missionaries in a, in a uh, uh, Middle Eastern country that was uh, closed to the gospel, extremely closed to the gospel, yet they still persevered and they had fruit uh, that remains, I believe, still even today. Um, and it's been a blessing to know them and to know their work, to know what they're doing. It's been an encouragement to know. Their work was fruitful enough that it brought them to the attention of the authorities in the country who happily invited them to leave the country. Uh, I say that uh, because it was a very serious matter, but, you know, we can sit back and, and uh, enjoy what God did because God did bring them out, but he, God left them there long enough to leave fruit. And we're thankful for that. And now they're kind of uh, in a holding pattern at Midtown Baptist Temple, waiting to see what God would have them to do about where they can go, because right now they can't go back to that country. That country won't let them back in. And uh, you know what? That's okay. God will open any door. God will close any door. We just have to watch for doors being opened and go. And so that's what they're doing. They're waiting and listening and watch, waiting for God to, uh, to, to show them exactly. They have a country in mind. He'll talk about that. I don't want to. Uh, go into all of that. He has a country in mind. But one thing I want to remind you all of is what we call missionary prayer teams. And the Fives have a prayer team. That prayer team is led by Lucas and Heather Borntrigger. I'd encourage you, after listening to this message today, if you want to know more about what they're doing, get a hold of Heather and Lucas and get on their team. Find out when their next meeting is. And if you want to go to somebody else, I and mean, we have seven other missionary prayer teams as well, so we have a total of eight. I'd encourage every one of us to be on a prayer team. I know you can pray any time. You don't have to be on a team necessarily to pray. But it is awesome to be able to pray w- together for a same common purpose on a team. So I encourage you to do that. So, James, come on up. Preach to us, man. He- let's, uh, let's hear what God has to say through you. Thanks, buddy. Good morning. I'm married up. Um, we'll just start with the obvious. Y'all were like, you didn't need to say that. <laughs> we heard her sing. And I was going to walk around and use the stairs, but when I saw Randy come up the hard way, I was like, well, I got to do that too. So, um, thank you guys very much. I, I do, as Rosie mentioned, we do know a lot of you. We've been uh, around this church for quite a long time and around some of your pastors for an even longer time. I think my relationship with with Brian and, and Randy both, goes back, we're approaching 30 years, Brian. 30 years I've known your pastor, and he's been investing in me uh, throughout my life, at, you know, some, in some periods of my life more than others, but uh, it's a relationship that I've always valued and always cherished from, from the bottom of my, of my heart since I was a, a young teenager. Uh, and the same with Randy. Uh, I've known him and his family for quite a long time as well, and you guys are... Uh, and extremely blessed people to have them uh, in front of you, leading you, serving the Lord with you. So thank you guys for the opportunity to be here. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity just to open up God's word and, and share from it with you guys. Brian told me kind of generally what you guys do on, on these fifth Sundays. It's a celebration time and, 
Um, and, and he said, you know, generally, you just kind of in this service, look at God's heart for the church. And so I just took that, and, and we're going to look at that. But we're going to look at that from Isaiah chapter 52. So if you have your Bible, you can be turning there to Isaiah chapter 52. And I know what some of you already are thinking. You're like, God's heart for the church. The church didn't even exist in Isaiah 52. This is a weird place to look at the heart of God for the church. You missed that by uh, a lot of years, James. And, and yes, you know, it's, you, you're right uh, about that. There was no church in existence in Isaiah chapter 52. But this is the beauty of the Bible. And as we kind of get into it, I want you to see that uh, what God was doing from you know, the garden is, is no different than what God is doing today. And, and the way that he's interacted with man and some of the ways that he has he specifically maybe laid that out or dispensed his grace may, may, may change over time. God's, God's heart for mankind has been the same. And so while there was no church at that time, there was the nation of Israel. And primarily at that time, God was dealing with Israel uh, throughout the majority of the Old Testament, as, as many of you are aware and what we can see in God's heart towards Israel parallels what we would see in God's heart towards the church. Both are referred to as, as, as sons of God. Israel collectively was referred to as a son of God, and we individually are, are referred to sons of God. Both are referred to as, uh, as, as being married to Christ or, or, the, or the bride of, uh, of the Lord. Uh, and a relationship that we have with him. And so that we can pick up a lot just by looking at how God interacted with them, uh, and, and we can apply that to how God's heart is towards us as well. And then Paul just tells us in Galatians, hey, uh, it's an allegory. There's a bunch of stuff that exists up in heaven, and I gave you examples of it here on earth, and there's a bunch of stuff that were in the Old Testament, and that's now it's here for you as an allegory. And so we can look at Israel, and we can see us in Israel and in in God's heart towards Israel. Now, we're going to look in in the book of Isaiah, and just real quick, by way of overview, the book of Isaiah, and I think you guys are are familiar with this because because I know you're pastors, but Isaiah is the Bible in miniature, right? It's 66 uh, chapters, just like our Bible is 66 books, and and it breaks down real nicely for us, and that Isaiah was preaching judgment for rebellion against God's covenant. And that's how the, the book starts. And in fact, the first 39 uh, chapters of Isaiah are along those lines. You can read that, more or less? Okay, good. Uh, and so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah heavily focus on God's judgment. Coincidentally, or not, there's 39 books in our Old Testament. And a lot of people, you know, from a, from a high level would look at the Old Testament and be like, oh, that was, that was the judging God, Right? And as you get into that latter half of, of the book of Isaiah, you get Isaiah shifting uh, and, and, and bringing a message also of hope, a message of fulfillment, a message of a God who, though his people were rebellious and had to be judged and had to be dealt with, in spite of all that, God himself is faithful to his promises, and he will revive and restore and redeem. And so you get the last half of the book focusing in on that, particularly in those last 27 chapters. Chapter 39 ends with uh, a future prophecy of the captivity in Babylon. And chapter 40 begins with, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. And as you, as you look at that transition from our Old Testament into our New, you would see you know, a similar idea as you're getting into the Gospels and immediately the, the message that, that comes seemingly out of the darkness and out of the silence is this, Comfort ye, my people, because hope is coming. And so that's the New Testament message that, 
that is delivered to us. Now, Israel had, little by little, walked into the ways of the world around them. And God warned, warned them about this long, long before Isaiah. God had warned them to, to stay separate from the world that they were going into, to stay separate from the people of the land that he was going in to take them. And, and as they went into the land, they let the people of the land have a great influence on them. And instead of being a, a called out and separated people unto the Lord... Uh, the time, you know, as time went by, you could tell no difference between uh, uh, an Israelite and a Moabite. And they had just fallen into serving the gods of the people around them and, and fallen into the sins of the people around them as well. And, you know, it's, it is, generally speaking, much like our, our church today as well. Uh, on a broad scale, I would say that we are much like Israel at the end of uh, of of the of maybe Isaiah chapter thirty nine, where God is looking at the church and going, man, judgment would be good for y'all. And we are more interested in defending sin, oftentimes, and in separating away from it. And as was the nation of Israel, and they were they were wholesale walking in sin, and uh, and you know even into the New Testament in the early church, you had the same issues going on. Um, Pastor Brian laid out 1 Corinthians this morning very, very beautifully talking about those same issues that were alive in the church today but have taken root and have become the identity of the church, broadly speaking, uh, in the church where we live in today. But as we're going to look, we're going to be in Isaiah 52. So we're kind of into that later part of, of Isaiah. And I'll give you a, just a quick um, breakdown of the, the last half of Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 covers God's greatness. Isaiah chapter 49 through 57 covers God's grace. And then Isaiah chapter 58 through 66 cover God's glory. And so we're kind of right in the middle of that looking at God's grace. And we're going to see that in this passage here in Isaiah chapter 52. But first I want to take us to uh, chapter 1 and just read one verse for you that also kind of helped to set the stage and the tone of what's going on throughout Isaiah. And I think throughout, you know, as I said, the church at large as well. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. And if we were to take that verse, those two verses right there, and, and I think they pre, pretty, pretty clearly give us a kind of an overview of the, of the heart and, and, and state of a, the book of Isaiah and the time of Isaiah and even us now. And I think out of that comes one really important question. Because what we see in, that, in those two verses is that the ox and the ass, they know their, their, their owner. They know their master because of how he cares for them. And the point that Isaiah is making is that the nation of Israel is worse off than the beasts of the field. Because the beasts of the field, even they recognize God who, who has provided for them. Yet you, my son, my bride, my child, have refused to acknowledge your true owner. So that brings the question, do the beasts of the field, are they more mission-minded than I am? Unfortunately, oftentimes the answer is yes. Because they are given wholly over to recognizing God as their master, their Lord, their owner. And this is a hard question. What about us? Are we wholly given to identifying the Lord uh, Almighty as our 
not just our Lord and not just our Savior, but as our master and as our owner, the one who cares for us just as he did for the beasts. And so that's the question, I think, that sets up all of Isaiah and that will set us up today. And then uh, we're going to go to Isaiah 52. So you can flip back over there. I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your care for us. God, that you cared so much for all your creation that, that the ox and the ass, they know, they know you because you provide for them. God, the flowers of the field and the trees and God, they're clothed and, and they're beautiful because, because you provide for them and yet all of that pales in comparison to the love that you have for us and the care that you have for us. Lord, I pray that we would uh, hear from you and that we would be a people who want to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 52, verse 1. We'll just work our way through the chapter, and I'm going to make a few points and, and see if we can apply it in our lives. Awake, awake, verse 1. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come in and into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. And so immediately we get into, as we get into Isaiah uh, 52, he begins with this awake, Awake, and essentially what that verse says is, Awake, awake, be strong and be beautiful. He talks about strength, and then he talks about beauty. And, you know, and on, on the surface, that might sound like some, um, you know, like, real feministic power message here. Like, women, you're strong, you're beautiful. Uh, it's not that. Not that at all. Um, here's what it really is. It begins immediately with a, with, a, with, a, with a pointing to Christ, with a prophecy of Christ. This phrase, awake. Awake is, is very interesting and unique in our Bible. It appears uh, four times in total in the Bible. Now, the very first time that this phrase appears is in the book of Judges, chapter 5 and verse 12. And it says this. It says, Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. And so... The very first time that this phrase, that, 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 you know, that God calls out with this repetitive call to wake up, wake up, what he immediately presents is Barak as a type of Christ. You have, you have messianic prophecy back there in Judges. He will lead his captivity captive, and we won't dive into all of that, but it's repeated in the Psalms, and then it's repeated about Christ himself as the one who led captivity captive. And so anytime you see this phrase, awake, awake, we go back to where it started and you should immediately think, wait, God's calling my attention and he wants to point me to Christ. So Isaiah 52 is going to start pointing us right to the feet of Jesus Christ, the one who will lead captivity captive. So Psalm 68 repeats that, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, wherefore he saith when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The next time that that, that uh, appears is in the chapter just prior to this. So in Isaiah chapter 51, you're going to get this same, this same thing coming out twice. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 9. Uh, he tells us again to awake, awake. And now he says, put on strength. O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Uh, and so he, he, he makes a different declare, decree there. It's a, again, it's awake, awake, but what comes ne next is this. It's put on strength. The first time it was awake, awake, utter a song, and now he says awake, awake, and put on strength. And he's speaking specifically now to the arm of the Lord. You jump down in Isaiah 51 to verse 17, and again, it's awake, awake, and then it's stand up, O Jerusalem. 
which has drunk in the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. For thou hast drunk in the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. And so now again, it's awake, awake, and the, and the instruction immediately after that is stand up, and he's speaking to Jerusalem now. And then you jump ahead to Isaiah 52 and verse 1, and this is the fourth time that that phrase shows up. Awake, awake, and he says now the, the instruction is to put on strength. Actually, it's not uh, put on strength. It's put on thy strength. It's a little bit different from what we saw in Isaiah 51 and verse 9. So put on thy strength, O Zion. And so now the, 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 the call, the instruction is being given specifically to Zion. And I think it's interesting, just looking at those, those three verses in Isaiah, the three times that you're being called to wake up and, and tune in, you get three different instructions to put on strength, to stand up, and then to put on thy strength. You get three different people that are being talked to or spoken to, but generally speaking, they all are actually the same. The arm of the Lord in Jerusalem and Zion uh, are the people that are being instructed. Um, but we too, as we mentioned, we can see and take and we can learn from this. And, and I think, you know, generally there's something here that God wants to tell us is that we need to wake up and put on strength. And that first call is, is the arm of the Lord. Generally, when you look at that throughout Scripture, you're going to see it referencing to the redemptive power of God. You see it in the Old Testament uh, many times uh, related to the nation of Israel. You see it in the New Testament specifically related to Christ and his ministry and the miracles that he was performing uh, right in front of the people. And the people are, are missing out. Uh, John is telling them, you're missing out on, on what God said, that the arm of the Lord is right in front of you. And so this is pointing, is pointing us to our strength has to be rooted in the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. That is where for us all strength begins. There is no strength, there is no hope, there is no anything without the redemptive power alive in our life. So we need the salvation of the Lord. And then it's a call to stand up, O Jerusalem. And we're going to see that actually here in the next verse in Isaiah 52. And then it's a call to put on thy strength, O Zion. And I think that's interesting. When you look at Zion throughout the Bible, it is also an interesting uh, study. You, and again, it's one of those you know, heavenly and earthly comparative things. There's an, there's an earthly Zion, there's a physical Zion, but there's a heavenly Zion. The real Zion, the true Zion as well. And so you get the earthly as a shadow of the heavenly uh, the earthly showing us what, what God ultimately wants to do in the heavenly. But it says that Zion has strength. And the call there is, Zion, put on thy strength. Because Zion has strength that's been laid aside until a day yet to come where Zion will stand up and will put on his own strength. All right? We don't have time to get in really to dig into all of that, but here's what I'll tell you this uh, about that. What God was doing in the Old Testament physically... Oftentimes, he, he shows us that he will finish physically in the yet future for us. So when we jump ahead, say, to Revelation, and we'll do that here in a minute, we'll see that in the future, God will finish the things that he said he would do in the Old Testament, right? And those are physical. But here's what's important for us. Spiritually, God wants to do now in me what he will do future tense in, 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 in his other children, in, in Israel and in and in, uh, in the earth. Okay? Does that make a little bit of sense? I'm going to explain that a little bit more. Let me give you this uh, first so we can kind of frame this in terms of our first key point 
when we're looking at this verse, the first key point that I want us to see about God's heart for the church is this. God's heart for the church is that it would be holy. Okay? God's heart for the church is that it would be holy. And the call here in this first verse is to get up and to get separated. Don't let any of the uncircumcised, the unclean, come into you anymore. This is the instruction to Israel, but this is the instruction to the church as well. Now, we see this repeated a few different times in the Old Testament. In Joel chapter 3, God says the same thing where he tells Israel, uh, again, speaking of Zion, his holy mountain, says, Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. And again, he's speaking of a yet future time when this will literally happen. And we see that in Revelation 21, 27, where he says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination and maketh a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that is talking about this new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem that is yet to come, right? And so God will fulfill his promise to make, to make Zion, to make his heavenly Jerusalem a perfect place that is fully and completely separated from the unrighteous, the unholy, and the uncircumcised. All right? Now, in the Old Testament, that was the, you know, the dwelling place of the Lord, the, the reunion place of the Lord and his people. Uh, and what he's saying is that one day in my kingdom, I will make that place holy. Now, remember, everything that God was doing physically and even into the future with Israel, he's doing spiritually with us now. And this is the heart of God. I would put out from among me all uncleanness, unholiness, the acts of the uncircumcised man, the acts of the old man. That is God's heart for me now because Zion is is his dwelling place and will eternally be the dwelling place of the Lord where people, where a literal kingdom will be in his presence. But listen, I am, right now, his dwelling place. You are, right now, the temple of the living God. And so we're not looking at the moment for for heavenly Zion. Oh, we are. I mean, we look forward to that day, too. But listen, right now, the dwelling place of the living God is you. And the cry and the prayer for the church is that it would be holy. That we would start to examine every area of our life and we would say everything that is unclean has to be put out. Because this is the dwelling place of the Lord. I mentioned earlier that both are referred to as a bride, I, and, and you know, national Israel as well. Uh, even New Jerusalem itself is referred to as a bride in Revelation uh, chapter 21. Ephesians chapter 5 talks to us about our relationship as the bride um, and and just our, uh, the picture that that paints for us, right? But we see this, you know, laid out and you read it in Ephesians chapter 5 and the desires that a bride would be clean and be, be holy and be pure and be right and be beautiful before her Lord when she comes before him or before the, the groom when she comes before him. A couple times throughout the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 7, Sanctify yourselves therefore and be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. For I am the Lord your God. 
Be holy as I am holy is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament and, by the way, in the New as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And this is the cry, this is the call, this is the instruction that God has given us. Consider for a minute a bride. Many of us here are married. You can think back to your own wedding day or, you know, TV wedding days if you're not married or uh, whatever your favorite bridal show is. You know, reality TV, there's a bunch of bridal shows now, like how people get ready to get married. Um, don't think about those because generally those seem to be awful. Uh, those are not good pictures of what a bride should be. But think about your bride. Think about, you know, Brian, you're standing at the altar and you're waiting. You're, you know your bride's uh, going to come to those doors any minute. And, uh, you know, the, the traditional way that we do weddings here. And, and then she, she pops through the doors and, you know, all of the congregation is already standing up and turning and looking and waiting for, for that bride to come through. And as she comes through, it becomes evident real quickly that uh, while she was getting ready, she got in a food fight. Like, she's got spaghetti, not just, like, all over her dress. And, like, noodles in her hair. And uh, chocolate cake smeared across her face. And you're like, what on earth? What kind of bride shows up for their wedding like that? We do, actually. Right? We know what we expect when, when, we, when we're at a wedding and a bride comes. She doesn't look like that. I have a bride, and uh, she's a beautiful woman, and she was you know, beautifully arrayed on our wedding day. and She's even more beautiful now than she was then. I told you, man, I'm, I'm married up. You, not just from that part of, of her, but, you know, all of it. Um, right now, we're remodeling a house, all right? So that's part of what's going on in our life. We, we are... Um, filling holes and doing a lot of sheetrock work. I don't know how many of you have messed with sheetrock. After you, you mud sheetrock, right? But then after you mud, you got to sand. And since we're sanding like every wall in our house, our house is full of just sheetrock dust all the time. And we're painting. So we're painting and, and sheetrocking, right? And so there, there's days where I'll go home. Uh, it's not the house we're living in. It's, we're going to move here in a few months or in a few weeks. And so I'll go, like, I'll go over to that house, and my bride's there, and I'll walk in, and, like, she is covered in dust, <laughs> head to toe. She's got paint in her hair. There's days I walked in, and she's got paint on her face and doesn't know it. Uh, and, and she's just, a, like, like a mess. She's just a mess. But that's okay, because there's, that's appropriate at that moment, right? There's a time for that. We understand that. What's not appropriate is for her to just, like, to pick up and, and to walk into church. Like, if she were to show up here and, and, like, she walked away from your piano and there's, like, this big cloud of white dust all over, you'd be like, something's wrong with that girl. You should have taken off your sheetrocking clothes before you came in here. This is the way the church lives, though. It's like we're walking through the dust of the world and then we just bring it right on into the presence of the Lord. Practically, let me show you what that means. Let me, let me show you here in the next verse. So it's awake, awake, put on strength. Those I am, put on, uh, put on thy beautiful garments. And this is what he wants to do. Put on strength and beautiful garments. Change. Change your clothes. 
and, and get looking, right? He says, for henceforth there shall no more come in unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. And he says this, shake thyself from the dust and arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of, uh, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now part of this verse doesn't make sense to us as Westerners. When he says, arise and sit down. Because to me, when I read that, I hear arise, that's like I was already sitting, and you told me to stand up, and then, you're, then right behind it you say, sit down. So you're like, what are you saying, God? Stand up, sit down. Well, it's like Simon says with the Lord. Stand up, sit down. But if you're, if you're an Easterner, now this makes sense, right? Because he starts out by telling him to shake off the dust, to get up out of the dust. Because in the East, sitting on the ground, and especially at that time, is, is the common way to sit. When I lived in Pakistan... Uh, you know, oftentimes if I was eating with, with local men, we would sit on, on the ground. We'd just roll a mat out and everyone would sit on the ground. So you're in the dust constantly, okay? And, and so in, in this context, the, what's being said is get up out of the dust and you're going to sit in a high seat now. But for an Easterner, that's weird. For us, that's normal. We're like, of course, we belong there because we always feel like we belong on some sort of throne. That's kind of the way we're... We're, we, we're, we think. But for an Easterner, like, why would I sit up on this higher chair? You know, and that's even addressed in Scripture. Hey, when you show up at a party, you sit in, in, the, in the humble spot. And you let someone else promote you, right? Uh, and so here's what God is saying. You want to get up out of the dust. You want to... By the way, what, what are we? This body? And what does it return to? We want to get up out of that, so we got to get up and we got to get separated from... From all the things of the world that get held on to us, you've got to wash, you've got to put on your clean garments. And then what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to sit you somewhere else. By the way, believer, you are seated already in a really high chair. It's called, I'm seated in heavenly places. I'm in the presence of the Lord right now. But I keep walking around in this dust. And he says, get up. So separate from the world. Stop living like the old man. I must get up and I must shake off the dust daily because the flesh is dust. Now, there's two different types of people in this room. There's um, morning people and then there's lazy people. I think that's how it goes. Now you know where I am. (laughs) Um... I don't, I, don't, I don't mean that, totally. Um, you may not be a morning person. Maybe you need three cups of coffee in two hours before you feel like your brain and your body can function. Some of you are like that. I have two sons. The older son is um, a morning person in that we bought an alarm clock to put in his room and it turns green at 6.30 so that he knows when he's allowed to get out of bed because he's already up and staring the clock down and in his mind willing it with all that he has, hurry up and change green, hurry up and change green. And the second it's green, he like sprints out of bed and he runs out and, and I'm up, you know, I'm usually up reading the Bible before him. He'll come out and he's like, hi dad, how's it going? Blah, 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 blah. And he's just going. Like if that clock wasn't there, he's the kind of, kid that I he would get up and he would go out on the back deck and start whistling and he would wake up the birds and they'd be like the roosters would be like why is this guy up so early right and some of you are like that okay so there's morning people and that's my older son and then there's and and like I said he he takes after me and then there's my younger son he's not like that at all 
He, he needs a few more hours, and once he gets up, he's still actually not up. He doesn't want to talk to you, and he can't engage, and you can't think. And he takes after, we'll just say not me, <laughs> for the, for, just to make sure I don't get in trouble, right? Um, his mom drinks coffee all morning and needs a little help getting going. Okay, so some of you are like that, right? But listen... Um, when we talk about the flesh in terms of its, of its desires and in terms of its will, in terms of its ability to, to find sin, to make sin, to make trouble, to make a mess, the flesh is a morning person. Right? Like maybe you waking up, you're not a morning person. But listen, the flesh needs no preparation. It doesn't need to get up and stretch. It doesn't need a couple cups of coffee. The moment you wake up in the morning and all you've been doing is sleeping and your subconscious mind has been at work, the moment you wake up in the morning, you're already dusty and dirty. You're already covered in it. I feel like I'm getting a little older. I mean, I know I am, because that's how time works. Uh, But I feel it in my body. Like, when I get up in the mornings now, I have to stretch. Eh, I like to be up early, but I have to stretch. And that helps me get moving. But in terms of the flesh and its ability to bring me into to, to wicked thought, it doesn't need a stretch. It gets up and it's ready to, it's like, let's sprint right now. It can go. And that's an important thing for all of us to remember. And, and, and then at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you really are a morning person or not. If you need some coffee uh, to get going and you need an extra hour of sleep, that, that's not as important as, as this. When you wake up, you need to know that the flesh is already ahead. The flesh is already winning. So the first thing I have to do in the morning is i got to get up and shake the dust off. I don't just need to stretch my body so it gets moving. I need to stretch my, my spirit, man. I need to stretch my soul, and I need to make sure that the word of God is coming in. So he's like, he says, wake up, and then he's like, shake that dust off. Get up off the ground. Don't sit down there with that. Arise. Loose yourself from the bands that are on your neck, he says also in verse 2. He wants you, you might not have realized this too, but... The, mo- the second you wake up in the morning, Satan's sneaky. The flesh is sneaky. You were sleeping. You didn't see it. You didn't feel it. You didn't know it. But there was, there was a yoke placed on your neck. Noose might be a better word. While you were sleeping. If you're not intentional about getting that thing off, then you're walking into your day, and all that thing does is get tighter and tighter all day long. Get up and get set free from, from, from me. I've got to get set free from me every morning, right? And this is God's heart for the church. And this is real practical, I think, in the way even that he's laying it out. Essentially what he's saying is what's your morning routine has got to be? No matter how early or how late, you've got to awake and shake. It's not quite as cool as that shake and bake commercial, but it, you know it rhymes. It's the same. You got to awake and shake. I got to wake up and I got to shake it off and I got to get moving in in the presence of the Lord. Verse three: For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. And God's talking about His people and how they'd sold themselves willingly into slavery to get nothing out of it. They've sold themselves into the wickedness of the world, and we do it too. We sell ourselves because, well, because the Satan is a, good, is a good salesman, but the pitch uh, is, sounds great up front, but at the end, uh, the bill is high, and you can't afford it. And at the end, you realize you've sold yourself for naught. Now, the promise there in verse 3 is that he will redeem. 
It won't take long, but by the end of this chapter even, we will see that God will redeem, and he, he does that uh, himself. But this is the kind of the explanation of how we know, how, how fully that we can know that God wants us to be holy. He says, even though that you're a mess, even though that you rebelled, even though you've sold yourself for not, listen, I so desperately want you to be holy that I'm going to intervene and I'm going to redeem you. That's what he's telling Israel and that's what he's told us. Right? So this is the proof. This is the proof of God's heart right there. Is that he will redeem. Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. The Assyrian in your Bible is a picture of Satan or a picture of the Antichrist and his work. Uh, and without cause. And you may look at your life, and some of you may look at your life and say, hey, you know what? I feel like there's a lot of things going on in my life that are unfair and unjust. Like I'm trying, and I am following the Lord, and without cause, I get this, all this stuff coming up against me. Well, hang in there, brother. Praise the Lord for that. Because Satan is unfair. Uh, he, he's unjust, and he will fight you without cause. He doesn't need a reason to come after you. Right now, we have a team from Midtown that's in Dallas um, spying out the land. We're praying over planting a church in, in Dallas. Um, kind of leading that effort with a small team. And so I've got a team that's down there. And I told them before they went, I said, you guys are going to, this is going to be a good trip. You're going to have fun. It's like, it's nine college students and they're road tripping it. So they're, they're loving it. They're having a good time. But listen, guys, missions is warfare. Always. Satan hates it. Satan hates what you're going down there to do. So they drive down there and they get down there at like midnight on Thursday night. Friday morning, uh, the leader of the team, he texts me and he says, my son has this croupy cough and he didn't sleep all night and I didn't sleep all night and my son can't breathe and I'm a nurse and I'm like, whoa, son can't breathe. This doesn't sound good. So I call him and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And we're talking and then, you know, we work through the thing with his son, and I remind him right before we hang up, I said, hey, Satan doesn't play fair. Satan hates what you're doing, and I'm not surprised that the first night there, you don't get to sleep for a second. And I'm not surprised that the, the first morning there, you're already under attack. And I'm also not surprised that it's your son that he went after, because Satan doesn't play fair. He's not going to attack you if he knows he can attack your child and your wife instead and get you that way. This is the reality of how Satan works. But God wants us to be separated from all of that. Next point, key point number two. Keep us moving along here. So, okay, so we saw that, you know, in, with the Assyrian. They went down into Egypt. Now, therefore, let's read, and I'll give you key point two. Verse five. Now, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. And so God is not happy with his people. His name is being drugged through the mud by his people. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. And key point number two, God's heart for the church is this, that you would know his name and his voice. Okay? And that's simple, but that's what God was calling out to the nation of Israel. He goes, you guys have wandered so far that you have forgot who I am. You don't know my name. And when I speak, you don't know and recognize my voice. And similarly, God's heart for the church is this, that we individually and collectively would hear his voice and know it, and that we would know his name and 
and, and be able to respond to that in Exodus chapter 3. This was nothing new. God had already revealed himself in Exodus 3 in a burning bush. God reveals himself to Moses and tells him who he is and says, pass that on to the entire nation. In Exodus 34, he, he does the same again. He says, this is who I am and these are my characteristics. And he says, pass that on to the entire nation. And over and over throughout Scripture, that's what God is calling uh, in the nation of Israel, and that's what God is calling of his people. Remember my name and hear my voice when I speak. This thing about remembering his name, it, it's not just that you're like, oh yeah, Jesus, I know the name. Jehovah, or, or whatever. It goes deeper than that, because throughout the Old Testament, God gives many, many names for who he is, but all of those are tied to his character. This idea about forgetting his name is really about forgetting his character. When we forget God's name, what he's saying is, you actually don't know who I am and how I want to interact with you. So to forget God's name is to forget God's character and the way that he works in our lives. God wants us to be able to recognize his character. And then call out back to him the attributes of who he is, and that's how he named himself, so that we would be tied to his character. Now this is, I'm going to give you a quick example. This is, I'm just going to tell you up front, this is a little bit silly. Um, it was a, a, like a, what do you call it, when people get engaged and they have a party to celebrate the fact that they're going to get married. I don't know, is that like a, it's not a bridal shower, because it was couples, it was everybody. It's whatever you call that, that's what it was. We were all there to celebrate, I guess, an engagement party. And one of the games that they were playing was uh, this kind of how well do you know your spouse-to-be game. And so they blindfolded the groom, and, or no, they blindfolded the, the, the bride, and then all the guys who were there at the party lined up, and, and she had to feel the hands blindfolded of all the men and would say yes or no, whether she thought that was her husband. She had to nail it down and see if she knew her husband's hands blindfolded, all right? So that was what she did, and the bride nailed it. She was like, nope, 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 that's my man, all right? And so then on the other side, for the, for the groom, he was blindfolded, and then all the ladies lined up, and they would give him a kiss on the cheek. And the goal was to see if, if he could identify by a kiss on the cheek which one was his bride. Now, again, this is kind of silly, and I'm not saying this is a game that anyone should play. I'm just saying this is what happened. And, uh, and I thought, I'm going to get into that line, and see if I can fool the groom. So I did. I kind of squeezed right into the middle of the line, and all the girls are going, and he would say yes or no, and if he said yes to you, you just stayed in line, and you just got back at the end of the line, and, and that's how it worked. And the first time I went, he was like, uh, yes. I was like, ooh, this is good. I, I fooled him. And I got back in line, and he kept we narrowing down some of these other women, and, and me again, I got a yes. I'm like, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm in line, and I got down, and there was, you know, like three or four left, and then finally I got thrown out, and and actually, he, he ended up identifying the wrong person. <laughs> it would have been really bad if he would have identified me, right? That, that would have been the really bad part of that whole game. And we would have been like, look, you were, ooh, this is, I don't know. I don't know what you would have done with that. Um, all that's kind of silly, but it's this. The point is, I think you see it. Do you know your Savior that intimately? This is the heart of God for the church. If he were to walk up and whisper, you would recognize that? Or when his character just shows up in your life and the spirits at work in your life, do you recognize that? Do you ever go, man, things are a disaster today and for some reason I have peace. I don't even know why. 
huh, moving on. And you totally miss the fact that this is the, this is the character of God at work in your life. And this is what happens. Knowing God's character gives us reason to worship. Why is there no worship in your personal life? Why is there no worship in your home? Because you've forgotten the character of God. We will fail to worship when we fail to recognize the character of God alive in our lives. Every time. They're tied together right here. They're tied together in other places throughout the scripture as well. Psalm 48.10 According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the end of the earth. According to thy name, so is thy praise. Thy name is tied to his character, and as I see his character, I praise. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. And this is what God wants out of us as his, as his church, as his people. His heart is that we recognize his character. And as crazy as it seems, to just speak right back to him, his own character. And he gets glory from that. Here in verse 6, God says he's going to speak. And what he's going to say is, it is I. One more cool phrase, I'll give you this, and we'll try to wrap up real fast so we can uh, move on. It is I, that phrase itself appears five times in your Bible. This is the, the first time that that appears. Every other time it's in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to the disciples while he's walking on the water, and the disciples are afraid, and, and he says, it is I, be of good cheer. Mark chapter 6, the same thing, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he's walking on the water, they're afraid, he, and this time he says, be of uh, he says the same thing. He says, be of good cheer. In Luke chapter 24, this is after his resurrection. His disciples are afraid again because he's shown up. And he says, uh, it is I. Handle me and see. And again in John chapter 6, uh, it's, assume, it's the same story. Jesus is walking on the water. And his disciples are afraid. And Jesus says, it is I. Be not afraid. So five times, one right here in the Old Testament, but five, four times in the New Testament, one in each of the Gospels, the, 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 the idea is that God, when he says, it is I, he comes to you when you're afraid, when you're weak, when you don't know what to do, and he comes to you and says, it's I. And the, and the thing that he wants you to understand about his character every time is that you can be of good cheer and don't be afraid. In fact, come close, handle me, and see. Come and know me intimately. And that's the call that he was given to to Israel at that time, and that's a call that God has given to the church today. Come, handle me and see. There's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, instead, you can be of good cheer. So the good news for all those who have gone astray, for all who are Egypt, for all who are oppressed without a cause, is that God still seeks you. His heart is towards reconciliation. I want to give you one more uh, point out of this chapter, as you come down next to verse 7, kind of a famous verse, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Point number three, God's heart for the church is to, is that they would be involved in the mission. God's heart for the church is that you would be a part of proclaiming, in this case, in this Old Testament Isaiah context, that you would proclaim the, 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 the salvation of the Lord, uh, the good news that, that comes out of Zion. In our case, the, the call is, this, this is cool. When you start reading the Old Testament, you start looking at the Bible as a whole. This is, this is you know, Great Commission-esque, right here in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 52, what do I want you guys to do? Get up, go proclaim it to someone else. Matthew 28, what do I want you guys to do? Get up, go proclaim it to someone else. It hadn't changed. And this is what he wants us to do. Paul takes that verse and he quotes it in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, uh, talking about us who would take the gospel and take it into another place. God invited Israel to participate with him in spreading the gospel, his, his message to the entire world. It began with Abraham, I want to use you to bless all nations. And that never changed. And throughout the Old Testament, God made a way for other nations to come and to be a part of the blessing that God was doing. Even if you were born as, as a Jew, only certain people could be uh, the priests based on how you were born. But God said, even in that, you want to follow me more closely? You want to commit your life? to being like the priest, then there was a, an opportunity for you, the Nazarite vow. You can consecrate and separate yourself unto this type of service. Uh, no matter who you are, God has always made a way. And the way has always been come and come closer and engage with me in the mission. Paul takes that verse and applies it to us and says, you need beautiful feet, which I personally don't understand because I, I don't like any feet. But God does. I want to tell you real quick what's up with the fifes since we're talking about mission here. God wants you to be engaged in the mission. God wants me to be engaged in the mission. Um, as, as Pastor Randy mentioned, we just over two years ago were, were kindly asked to leave from the place that we had been, and we obliged because that was the best option. And we landed back in Midtown, and we were praying and considering what God would have us to do, and then COVID hit, and COVID changed everything. And it took us uh, you know, some months to to kind of come to peace with where we were and what God was doing. And to be honest, in my heart, my heart is always towards missions and towards uh, the nations and maybe to a fault. There's a part of me that also just likes to, to be on an adventure and to go. And God had to calm some things in me and, and God had to make it clear to us that for right now, for a season, I want you to invest wholeheartedly into the mission of, of Midtown Baptist Temple and into their missions endeavor. And to be honest, that's a little challenging for me. Because I would rather be, you know, anywhere that God would have me. And that's nothing against the local church. That's nothing against Midtown. That's just kind of the way that I think God had wired me. And I, I, I want to go. And I want to be a part of reaching the unreached. Right? And so we've settled and, into that. And we, we gave our hearts and our lives to God in that. We said, hey, however you're going to lead us, we'll, we'll patiently wait. We've been able to to be a part of, uh, of the, the mission and missions through Midtown. As I mentioned, we're, we're currently working on, um, we're in the early stages of a potential church plant in Dallas. And, and so I'm taking a trip every once in a while down to Dallas and leading teams down there. I don't think that's something that long-term I'm a part of. I, don't, I, have, I have not felt that God is calling me to pastor that church. Uh, you know, but also continually moving forward, next year our prayer is that we're able to get out and, and to go and to see a couple different things. Um, the world is opening back up, and, and they're, you know, COVID is, is loosening, and God is giving Midtown and us some vision. We have a, a sister who is in Nairobi, Kenya, um, who is in Midtown for a number of years and went back to Kenya and uh, has started Bible studies. She's got three Bible studies going, one with her family, one with uh, her lost co-workers and then a Q&A Bible study. We're just like lots of lost people just show up and ask questions. And Pastor Sam has been leading that via Zoom once a month and answering Bible questions. And so we as a church are also considering what would it take to plant a church in Nairobi. We don't have a key man, and so we're praying for that. And part of that vision is that some of us 
are committing next year to go and to spend in a, uh, you know, four to six weeks each there on the ground in Nairobi and see what would happen if we took six months and invested in Nairobi. And as of right now, our family's plan is that we'll spend four, four to six weeks on the ground in Nairobi in the early spring of next year. Uh, I don't know uh, if God is leading us specifically there, but I know that uh, what God led us is to be fully invested into the mission of, of, that Midtown is working right now and the way that God has blessed me, uh, you know, and, and my flexibility and uh, ability to work and to go, uh, we're going to do that. So we'll be in Nairobi, um, Lord willing, for four to six weeks next year trying to just lead Bible studies and, and see if there's fruit that remains there. From there, we want to leave from Nairobi and go straight to Spain. Uh, and this is what we've been praying about, you know, a year and a half ago. So we want to get two weeks on the ground in Spain. So you guys can be praying for, you know, both of those. I don't really know uh, how God's going to open doors and where he's leading, but we want to go see uh, a couple different cities in Spain and spend some time there doing the same thing, just scouting out the land, Numbers 13, and bring back a report and then see what God will do. And if, if uh, we're at a place where God's going to open that up and allow us to go, then, you know, we're, we're still praying over that. So that's where we, we are at in terms of the mission uh, and how you guys can be praying for us. So it's on the horizon. It's kind of a distant horizon, and I know we're still six months away from any of that, but there's a lot that's going on, and we're, we're plugging in and, and investing in, in the mission as God has given us. And that's what God has called you to do. And we're just going to wrap right there because we got to get the Lord's Supper uh, going. Listen, God's heart for the church is for you to walk holy and righteously before him. And as you finish out this chapter, we didn't get there, it shifts. In verse 12, 13, and 14, it starts preaching the coming of the Savior, and it leads us right into Isaiah 53. One of the greatest pictures in the Old Testament and prophecies of our Savior. What a perfect place for, for Isaiah 52 to push us, and in the context of this service, is what we all need to do now, is we need to reconsider the one who hung on the tree to give his life so that we might be saved and consider our life in light of that sacrifice as we get ready to come before the Lord. I'm going to pray and Brian's going to come up and take over. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, this opportunity this morning just for a few minutes to see how your heart has never changed. And God, I pray that we would be, be challenged just to walk in your presence, to walk holy uh, and to, to remember your character and 